you're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. When you're an American Express Platinum card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Bet the board. What do you mean you don't bet? I mean, I don't bet. You know, I don't care. I don't care. I never have, and I never will. Yeah, right. I bet you 20 bucks I can get you gambling before the end of the day. You owe me 15 grand, pal. Pay him. Pay that man his money. It's the Bet the Board podcast. God likes me. He really, really likes me. In the end, I wound up right back where I started. I could still pick winners. And I could still make money for all kinds of people back home. And why mess up a good thing? Here's Payne Insider and Todd Furman. Welcome into the Bet the Board podcast, college football week eight edition. We are back in the saddle. I know all of you, our loyal listeners, missed us when we took our bye week last week to attend Tennessee, Alabama. I am your host, Todd Furman, joined as always by my esteemed colleague and co-host, the one, the only Pain Insider. And Pain, have you dried out from our six plus day bender of debauchery in Nashville? I think it was pretty calm and cool aside from one evening. I think Uh we were adults. We did keep an aggressive itinerary and a cross-state bus ride that started at 5.30 in the morning probably prohibited us from uh, a little bit more raucous festivities on Friday night. So to your point, we were adults Tuesday, Wednesday at dinner. Thursday night, we got after it a little bit. And, you know, Saturday, we spent a full day on the bus. And uh, what an experience at Neyland Stadium. Uh, Incredible atmosphere. Something that you and I don't really get to partake in all that often, given the sacrifices we make for what we've chosen as our career paths. Yeah, I mean, that was our first time away since inception of this podcast in 2014. And I think if you've listened religiously, you know we talk about 14, 16 hour days, getting two, three, four hours of sleep religiously most nights, and that being about the gist of it. But we had to celebrate Todd's pending nuptials, and we handpicked a great game, took some fortune along the way, a bad play call by Jimbo, Quinn Ewers going down, Caden Slovis going down, and fortunately, both Tennessee and Alabama were undefeated and then we were treated to a great game while we were there but just a crazy environment more than a hundred thousand fans in the stands you could not hear yourself in there it was wild and then another what two hundred and fifty thousand outside the stadium tailgating just an absolute scene 
Yeah, I mean, pretty wild. And, and to kind of peel back the curtain a little bit, obviously it doesn't pertain to handicapping. We get into Nashville on Tuesday. Uh, we talk to some of the great radio personalities we know uh, from 3HL there on Wednesday. And the first thing they ask is, what time are you guys planning to leave on Saturday? We think, oh, great. We got plenty of time. We got the bus schedule for seven o'clock to get the guys ready to go. And Payne, you, you'd have thought that that we had told them that Tennessee was 0-6 and, and Josh Hype was going to get fired. The way that they looked at us said, no, no, no. You can't leave that late. You're going to get stuck in a sea of orange and crimson and cream or whatever Alabama's colors are. So we bumped that bus right up to 90 minutes earlier. There were a couple gentlemen in our crew that may not have been thrilled, uh, but I think we made the veteran executive decision to be able to pull that off uh, and made sure we had ample time to tailgate before kickoff. Oh, no doubt about it. And the tailgate was fantastic, obviously. The group of guys was really good, right? We did dinner a couple nights with couple of your buddies from the music industry who were fantastic and then uh, got close with some of your buddies who I'd met for the first time. So it was a good group overall, but it was a very smart move leaving about 90 minutes early to trek to, to Knoxville. And then the tailgate was really interesting that we were invited into. But, you know, we're sitting there during the tailgate watching Ole Miss Auburn, but it was just a scene of who's who's from mayor of Tennessee to... Hendon Hooker's mom to Brew McCoy's family. It was it was a it was a good tailgate scene for uh, for us. Yeah, I will say uh, thanks to Clay for inviting us into the fold. I did not anticipate on my bachelor party bingo card singing happy birthday to Hendon Hooker's father um, as part of the pregame festivities we would, we would take part in. But again, for all the loyal listeners out there that made recommendations for restaurants, where and what to do in Knoxville as well, can't thank all of you and for those folks who helped make this a reality. Uh, my, Heartfelt gratitude sent out to all of you guys. Uh, and like you said, Payne, it takes a very special event for us to take a week off. Appreciate the listeners' patience, and more importantly, that we had Brad Powers to fill in. But we do have a big slate of games to get to, and we may as well wait until Brad is in the mix before we say all sorts of nice things about the kind of content he created in our absence. He joins us every Wednesday here on the Bet the Board podcast, and you, of course, can follow Bet the Board college football analyst Brad Power 7 on Twitter. And Brad, if folks should see me now sitting in my hotel room in lovely central Phoenix, it would be me standing up giving you a standing ovation for the fine job you did last week when Payne and I apparently uh, opted to take the week off and see the best college football game of the year in person. You know what? I did the whole hashtag no days off, but if you'd have told me beforehand that you guys would see one of the best college games, forget just of this year, but probably the last decade, maybe ever, I would have said, you know what? Maybe there's extenuating circumstances where you could in that once in a decade type situation take a week off work. So kudos to you guys for seeing and enjoying and taking in that great game. You know what was funny about it, Brad, and Payne and I kind of joked about it during our, our time in Knoxville, is people asked us how far before the season we booked a trip, and we said we started to assess the SEC schedule back in, I don't know, Payne, what, it was late May, early June, and figure out dates, and people, including those wearing Tennessee orange, looked at us like we had three eyes going, wait, you thought this was going to be one of the more impactful SEC games? And we kind of indicated that sometimes a plan can come together when you do the homework ahead of time, so all three of us being in agreement that this was going to be one of the best seasons that Tennessee had put together came to fruition. And to your point, uh, outstanding to be a part of that atmosphere, although Payne and I were not aggressive enough to help throw those Tennessee goalposts into the Tennessee River. (laughs) I I hear you. I was wondering. I was looking for you guys uh, among that sea of humanity, but uh, (laughs) I didn't see you guys. 
Yeah, I think pain. I'll, was- I'll tell you this, Brad. About midway through the second quarter, because there was you know four or five days of shenanigans leading up to this game. I know where this I is going. I look over, and Todd's half asleep in the middle of that environment. Oh my god, he was beaten up. Wow. Yeah. But midway through the second quarter, I looked over. He was dozed off. How? I mean, standing with the, up with the decibel level inside <laughs> the stadium. How? <laughs> you know, Brad, what the other part that pain leaves out, we were standing the entire time, too. So I fell asleep actually standing up, leaning on a counter. So wow. it may not have been my finest moment, but a friendly <laughs> reminder that at 40 years of age, I might not be built for a four-day bender tailgating and that type of atmosphere. So even with 100,000 of my nearest and dearest friends around, I had to get a little bit of shut-eye in the middle of the second quarter. Those Tennessee football games take an eternity, guys. You look up, they've run nine plays and 37 seconds have come off the clock. <laughs> yeah, he took a little uh, shut-eye like the Alabama defense did there for a while in the second quarter. No, I, I may have been more present than the Alabama defense uh, over the course of the four hours there. We'll, of course, get to Alabama and how they bounce back. But, gentlemen, a lot of ground to cover. And no doubt, Brad, outstanding job. And I think our listeners appreciated us for the no days off theme as Payne and I have taken nothing but shit on the NFL side uh, <laughs> since we didn't have a podcast there for Thursday or Monday. Speaking of undefeated teams, we'll go to Fort Worth, Texas to start things off. A night game as TCU will welcome in the Kansas State Wildcats. And you're looking at TCU, a three and a half point home favorite. Total in the game, 55 and a half. We did see the side open as high as five and the total at 59. When you look at what Sonny Dykes has done, if the Frogs can get through this game, they'll be the fourth strength ranked team and match their best start since 2015 at 7-0. When you look at how they performed then, they started 7-0 in 2017. They got to 8-0 in 2015 with now a very realistic path to the playoff given their upcoming schedule. Meanwhile, Kansas State, a win for them would give them the inside track to its first Big 12 championship game berth since 2003. That's, of course, the year... Kansas State throttled unbeaten number one 35 to 7 for the Big 12 title. When you look at how Kansas State has performed this year, gentlemen, they've scored 61 first quarter points to rank fourth in the Big 12, and the Wildcats plus 41 scoring margin in the first quarter ranks third in the league. Brad, we talk about it all the time. When you have to bring it week in, week out, it can be tough to ratchet up that energy. And you look at the recent run that TCU has been on. SMU in a rivalry game, three straight ranked conference opponents, and a lot of one-score contests at that, Oklahoma notwithstanding. How do you go about adjusting overall season power numbers based on the strength of situation that clearly have to be working in the favor of Chris Kleiman's bunch come Saturday? So obviously, starting off point for any handicap is just going to be what is your power rating on a game. Now, that could be just taking the, you know, the two teams' statistical performances. Uh, you're coming up with a power rating, and you have that as a starting point. And then for me personally, then I get into you know situational type stuff. Start of the season, I'm not a big situational guy. But you got, we talked prior to hit and record here that this time of year, the edges are smaller and you're looking for any added edge that you can possibly find. And I'm here to tell you around this time of year is when I start looking at a little bit more situations. And I think this is one of the bigger edges of the week as far as this game goes with Kansas State off a of bye. And like you mentioned, TCU playing a fifth straight big time game, at least for them. And for me, TCU is not an Ohio State or a Georgia from a depth aspect where, you know, they could just continue to roll in guys in and out and you're not going to miss a beat. I just question if TCU can bring an A game here. And because of it, you know, I think it's worth at least a half point or a point. So I'll have my starting off power rating 
says that the line makes sense, but because I, I think there is a situational edge for Kansas State, that, that kind of leans me already at the very start of the handicap towards K-State here. It makes a ton of sense, and it's always one of those things as a handicapper, you try and figure out how to quantify revenge, quantify the third road game in as many weeks. That fourth game, or in this case, we should say the fifth game, as people look at the schedule and go, what's the big deal? They played SMU. That's a massive rivalry, especially for Sonny Dykes and company, and you look at the way that they had a erase a 14-point deficit going into the fourth quarter against Oklahoma State. But Payne, if Kansas State's going to be successful and pull off the upset here, even with a rest advantage working in their favor, one of the things that this group does so well is their discipline. As far as the penalty yardage they yield, they make you move the ball methodically down the field against that defense. But the $100 million question, Adrian Martinez has clearly experienced a renaissance. You look at what he means to this offense, both with his arm and his legs, and that's been outstanding. But does Kansas State have a enough firepower in your estimation to put a TCU defense on skates that has been a little bit vulnerable in recent weeks when they step up in class. I think that's the path, right? You envision Kansas State being able to play bully in the trenches on offense with Deuce Vaughn and and Adrian Martinez. And that's the one thing that's been interesting about Martinez is he didn't want to turn the ball over this year. And we saw coming into the Oklahoma game that their head coach was Kleinman was like, let's let's let this thing rip a little bit more. It's great you're taking care of the ball, but we need to be a little bit more aggressive. And we saw that for two weeks. Obviously, not the case against Iowa State, but I think with this specific matchup, it's going to be those two guys' legs on the ground. And right now, Deuce Vaughn is really just picked up where he left off last year. He's averaging 1.9 yards per team play. Kansas State's offensive line, 17th and opportunity rate. So that's a ranking, again, that credits both the O-line and the running backs gaining at least four yards when four yards are blocked. TCU defensively, 66th in adjusted line yards outside the top 100 in stuff rate, outside the top 50 in EPA per rush allowed. So not only have they been poor stopping the run, but you couple that with what you guys talked about at the top of exerting all of this energy for big games. Meanwhile, Kansas State's got the bye week just kind of waiting in the weeds. I think that's something that's interesting here. And the other thing that you have to consider is we've seen nothing but one-way traffic, both side and total. TCU opened as high as six. We're now down to three and a half. Some four still out there a couple places. Total whacked from 59 to 55 and a half yesterday at this time. And then around 9 a.m. this morning, that second wave came through to 54 and a half through the largest key number in college football, 55. So points are becoming more valuable. And you think about why that's happening, right? It's, it's twofold. As we record this Wednesday morning, 20 mile per hour winds are in the forecast. So keep monitoring that, obviously. But the gusts are approaching the 30 mile per hour range. And you look at TCU, they pass the ball at a 10% higher rate than Kansas State. So that's going to impact their style of play more. And that's one thing when you might not have access to the information on who's betting what, you can start to read markets and deduce that this total coming down yields the idea that this game is going to be played a little bit more towards Kansas State's style. And just quickly on the other side of the ball, you're looking at a Kansas State defense that's top 10 in EPA per pass allowed. So you're thinking to yourself, TCU's 
air attack probably won't be as efficient this week because of those other elements. Brad, it's amazing. Payne picks on me for my bachelor party festivities and all of that. He was so banged up on Broadway. He doesn't even know what day of the week it is that we record these college football podcasts, calling it a Tuesday, but I, he was on such a roll. <laughs> did I, I say a, Tuesday? I, I had to continue did to I say le- Tuesday? You sure did say no, Tuesday. No, 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 no. Uh, yeah, you I did. I said that, that. No, I didn't. I said the line moved this time yesterday. Well, we'll, pull, we'll, we'll have to pull it back on the recording. We'll okay. throw the red challenge flag and see what we got. But Okay. I, 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 I probably did. You're probably right. I agree with you, boys. When you look at this spot, it'll be interesting. If TCU can bring it here and cover this number, then we definitely have to talk about them not only being a legitimate dark horse for the national championship, but Max Dugan's case to be made for being in the thick of things for the Heisman Trophy, getting that much more substantial. However, when we look at a pair of unbeatens, guys, it'll take us to Clemson, South Carolina, and a game I don't think anybody had circled on the calendar before the season started having massive implications in the ACC and national championship race. It's the Clemson Tigers, nearly two touchdown favorites at home as they'll welcome in the Syracuse Orange. The total in this game, 50, both side and total remain largely unchanged. When you look at Syracuse, they'll head to Clemson looking to extend their best start since 1987 and get out to 7-0 while notching its second top five win its last 18 tries. The only win so far in that span came over the same Clemson Tigers back in 2017. Meanwhile, Clemson, they've been the model of consistency, looking for a 38th straight home win to break the ACC record. They haven't exactly faced a very daunting schedule during that particular stretch. Brad, when you look at the Syracuse Orange, hey, full marks to Dino Babers and what he's been able to accomplish so far this season. But I go through the resume. I look at the schedule they've played. One true road game so far this year at UConn. How difficult is it to assess, even with multiple data points for the Orange, how good this team is right now and how much they should have been upgraded from where you had them to start the season? Yeah, I think it is, again, the number one factor here. Uh, Here we are in the middle of October, and I'm not sure really how good Syracuse is. Even, I mean, on paper, they beat NC State, beat Purdue, a couple of solid teams, maybe borderline top 25, even in a Vegas power rating. But then you dive deeper into those two games. Purdue was really banged up, uh, specifically at uh, running back and wide receiver in that game. And still, Purdue should have won the game. They outgained Syracuse by nearly 200 yards. And, you know, if not for a couple of dumb penalties after their last touchdown, Syracuse probably doesn't score there in the final seconds. And then last week, yeah, I mean, if somebody's not paying attention to who was in or out of a lineup, I mean, Syracuse controlling NC State by that kind of score seems very impressive. But the fact that NC State was, you know, down to a backup quarterback and Devin Leary, in my opinion, is a guy that's probably worth at least five or six points to a point spread. So and then I throw this one in there, too, because if you're looking at full season statistical averages, I mean, the Wagner game and a very bad FCS team, we're talking bottom five FCS team. Syracuse outgained them by nearly 600 yards. You do the math when you played six games. That's, I mean, your yards per game average goes up 100 yards per game. So uh, I, I have my doubts on just how good Syracuse is. And you know what? Pay attention to the post game last week. I think Dino Babers might have tipped himself off a little bit. Uh, he, he mentioned bowl eligibility last week. Big win for him. But he's like, it was important to get to bowl eligibility. Why does he mention that? I think it's two fronts. Number one, I think it was very important for him to get to bowl eligibility this year if he was going to you know, still be the Syracuse coach in 2023. But also, this upcoming stretch for Syracuse, 
night and day difference uh, in terms of strength of schedule. They, they will be an underdog in, in possibly four, maybe even five of their last six games. So we will not only find out just how good Syracuse is uh, on Saturday, but also a, a daunting stretch of opponents here, even though it's only the ACC coming up for them. Brad, you mentioned that Wagner game, and if you look at what Sean Tucker has done this season, this isn't to disparage anything he's accomplished on the football field. His averages basically jump from a shade more than 80 yards per game against FBS opponents to averaging more than 100 yards per contest, and he did that in a shortened game nonetheless against the Wagner Seahawks. And when you look at this Syracuse Orange offense, you know Garrett Schrader has been outstanding. I think he deserves full marks for the improvement he's made. Robert and I is coming as the offensive coordinator and is having the same impact on Schrader that we're seeing the negative impact that Brennan Armstrong has gone through as starting quarterback of Virginia. Aronde Gadsden has paced the receivers, but even last week in the win against NC State, Gadsden, eight catches, 141 yards and two touchdowns. The rest of the receiving room, eight for 69. And Payne, I bring all that up to ask this question. When we look at the Clemson defense, we thought this could be one of the best front sevens in all of college coming into the year. Now, in my opinion, they haven't lived up to those expectations, but there's still time to get right, and you don't win national championships in the middle of October. October, do you see a path to success for Syracuse to stay in this inside this number with their offense against the Clemson defense that's just now starting to get a little bit healthier? I think that's the great question. What what Clemson defense are we getting? The one that we thought was the best in the country or the one from last week? And I know people will look at the 34-14 score at one point in the FSU game and think that that was an absolute blowout. And the reality was there was about a three-minute stretch where Clemson outscored Florida State by 17 points. But if you look, Florida State had drives of 75, 93, 44, 76, 60, and 94 yards. Clemson's defense missed 24 tackles against FSU. And you look at Florida State's offensive line, it was beaten and battered. They created 3.7 line yards per rush, more than 2.6 yards before first contact against this Clemson defense. And you look at all of those things that translated to a positive 0.55 EPA per rush. So effectively, anytime FSU ran the ball, it translated into more than half a point per run attempt. More than 56% of FSU's runs gained five plus yards. And this was a game where Clemson defensively was near their healthiest all season. That was the talk. You have Nick Eason, Clemson's defensive tackle coach. If you listen to his presser on Monday, he was fired up because of how poorly Clemson performed in the trenches. And the quote from the presser was, stopping the run comes down to how bad you want it more than your opponent. It starts inside your heart. I'm not the Wizard of Oz or Jesus. Some things you need to be born with. So we have to get back to basics, techniques, and fundamentals. Star ratings don't mean shit. So I think they're going to be a little bit more fired up this week. I don't know if we're going to get the dominant Clemson defensive front. We thought they could be at the beginning of the season, but they're healthy. They've been called out up front. Syracuse, the row lines played very well. They lack some depth, but four starters returned from a really improved unit last year. The Cuse are top 25 in line yards and opportunity rate. Sean Tucker, to your point, has been good, right? I mean, he's third in the country in yards per team play, and that's measures basically efficiency and volume. So he's been a stud there. Garrett Schrader, we've talked about him being upgraded a little bit. I think, you know, clearly he's he's been good for the Syracuse quarterback position, no doubt. Still don't know if he's good enough as a passer to consistently attack Clemson where it's been vulnerable this season. Because Clemson right now outside the top 40 in EPA per pass allowed. I think you have to hit some passes to open things up for Sean Tucker on the ground. Now, if the Cuse can get their ground game going, 
not as much pressure on Schrader. But ultimately, if if Schrader can hit some passes and soften some things up for Tucker, I think that goes a long way. Clemson has also played some mobile quarterbacks with Jeff Sims and Jordan Travis last week. So I think that helps here when thinking about Schrader's mobility. Listen, the 13-point spread is really interesting perceptually, right? You have two unbeatens. I think the casual fan is thinking, how could that be? Our core number on the game is actually 14 and a half. The line is high for a reason. And I think all of us on this podcast were pretty high on Syracuse relative to expectation. The team was projected to win three and a half games. But this is a different animal on the road in Death Valley. And I think as Brad astutely pointed out, you have to make the manual adjustment for Devin Leary being out. And across the board, Syracuse strength of schedule really poor, 87th, just one top 40 win, and it was at home against an undermanned Purdue team. That required the game-winning drive. Wagner, much to our chagrin, because we laid 53 in, in that game. And uh, <laughs> Thanks for bringing that up. Canceled. Thanks. But, I mean, you, you just you look at what Syracuse has done, and it's a great story, and you like it, but this is just a totally different animal they're going against here. I have to think that a lot of the college basketball fans out there get discouraged when they hear us break down. Kansas gets a deep dive this season for the first time in program history around Bet the Board. Syracuse gets a deep dive for the first time in a while, and here we are just casting aspersions in their direction, saying these seasons have kind of come out of nowhere and the market hasn't quite caught up. Brad, when you look at Clemson and Syracuse, how much have you adjusted these two teams respectively from where they started this season suffice to say Clemson about the same and Syracuse has obviously been the major beneficiary oh yeah no no doubt there I mean even though like Payne mentioned higher on Syracuse at least relative to market coming into the season I've still had to upgrade them six points even though they haven't played that tough of a schedule I mean you, you have to respect the job that they've done and especially on the defense side of the ball I know they haven't faced a who's who uh, as far as opposition there but uh uh, I really like what they're doing under their second-year defensive coordinator, Tony White. So six-point upgrade for Syracuse. Clemson, they're unbeaten, but I'm here to tell you, I've downgraded them slightly. Defense has not met expectation. Uh, offense has improved, but coming into the season, my thought process was, sure, we have the big three, Alabama, Ohio State, and Georgia. Who's that fourth team? At least for me, it was Clemson. They haven't lived up to at least to that expectation as far as I'm concerned, even though they're unbeaten. Almost would love to see a round robin of sorts between Clemson, Michigan, and Tennessee at this point to see who of those teams which could actually go out there, take advantage of a couple of tactical advantages. One last thing on this game, Payne, and Brad brought it up. When you look at Clemson's defense, we talked about obviously and not living up to preseason hype thus far. Offensively, do you see any edges that Clemson can exploit against this rapidly improving Syracuse defensive front? Yeah, you know, listen, I think we all kind of get that Clemson's offense has improved and it's happened for a number of reasons, right? Getting rid of Tony Elliott has helped. <laughs> DJU dropping 30 pounds and being that extra man advantage in the run game has helped. And, you know, you look all told Clemson's offense was outside the top 70 in schedule just efficiency last season. Now it's a fringe top 25 offense through seven weeks. It's it's certainly not back to championship run seasons with Trevor Lawrence and Entian. But and the, the one thing that's kind of interesting as I watch Clemson, they don't really have like go-to aspects, whether it's, you know, certain formations or it's certain players. But across the board, the one thing that you see with Clemson is they're buttoned up and they're situationally fantastic. They're converting red zone trips into touchdowns at a top 20 rate. They turn quality possessions into points at a top five rate. 
Clemson's offense has been really aided by good field position, and they've been damn good converting on late downs. Now, those things don't necessarily sound sustainable, but it's still a huge improvement year over year. And I think the one thing that you guys have hinted at is Syracuse defensively has improved. But what's interesting is Tony White plays this really attacking 3-3-5 defense that he likes to call the mob. It leaves them light in the box at times, and Syracuse has to run blitz to fill gaps. And that's why you have a Syracuse defense that's still 95th in rushing success rate allowed, 99th in stuff rate, 110th in opportunity rate allowed, and they're outside the top 100 in EPA per rush allowed. So that's something to think about here. Syracuse does a really good job creating havoc. So when they run blitz this week, pay attention to this, right? You have to make DJU change direction immediately when he's a runner. He's more of a builder. Shipley obviously has some wiggle and Moff has come on strong, but he's also a guy you want to make change direction. If Syracuse can quickly make Moffa and, and DJU change direction as runners, they might not get beat up as badly on the ground as the metrics suggest. Now, Syracuse loves its corners and secondary. They've been great down to down through the air. They've limited some explosiveness there. But I do question, again, the competition. You look at the first four games of the season, Syracuse faced passing offenses on average that are currently 90th in EPA per pass. Then back-to-back weeks against 0-6 FCS Wagner, who attempted six passes all game so they could speed things up. And then you got, to to, uh, Brad's point, a backup in Jack Chambers from NC State who can't throw the forward pass. You look at Clemson again, like I don't know if DJU's proven to be like the five star guy, but he certainly lost the weight. He's worked on his footwork. He's worked on his base. He's not elite by any stretch, but the intended air yards are up year over year. Adjusted completion percentage up clean pocket up under pressure up QBR up right turnover worthy players are down. It's all better this season than last. And so I think this is interesting. While we like those corners for Syracuse, they certainly have not been tested at any point this season. And you know what, Payne? You mentioned Will Shipley. Obviously, Clemson had a game plan for his usage rate coming into the season. I mean, he carried the ball 32 times through the first three games of the season. Since then, he's averaged 16 carries a game with a season high last week against Florida State at 20. And maybe we got a glimpse of who Clemson's deep threat can be. Antonio Williams with a big play against the Seminoles last weekend. Has a long of 22 or more yards in four of his last five games. We'll see if the vertical passing threat is there when the Orange invade Clemson, South Carolina. From the East Coast to the West Coast, gentlemen, in a massive game in the Pac-12 pecking order, it's UCLA taking on Oregon. And Oregon right now, a six-point favorite. Total in this game, 69.5. It's down a touch from where this price would have been set during the summer months, with Oregon slightly more than a touchdown favorite. You look at Chip Kelly, this will be his third return trip to Eugene, but this time the game actually means something in the big picture. Oregon won its third straight in the series last season at the Rose Bowl by 34-31 scoreline, following a typical back-and-forth game that featured a big Oregon comeback from down 14-0, and UCLA almost being able to erase that deficit themselves, coming up just short. Both teams fresh off of bye week, so perfect time for UCLA, who had beat big-time opponents in their own building in Washington and Utah. Oregon, a much different looking team in the recent run of play than what we saw in the season opener against Georgia, but it does leave some questions about the Oregon offense and who have they really faced thus far. From my standpoint, guys, a fascinating matchup of two quarterbacks that have been much maligned. DTR in his 37th year of college football. I feel like he's been there since Chip Kelly uh, has been the head coach at UCLA. Meanwhile, Kenny Dillingham and Bo Nix getting the best out of what they can do there. Brad, when you look at these two teams and their full body of work, I know you've been a major UCLA detractor all season long. Are you starting to buy into what the baby blue and gold has accomplished in recent weeks? 
I I am finally. I it took a couple of losing bets to finally come around, but <laughs> I, I got there after the Utah game. Uh, obviously, I was on the Utah side. You know, I questioned UCLA coming into the season on two fronts. Number one. You know, it was a relatively inexperienced team. Uh, I know they went heavy transfer portal. I got to look into that in future years when I'm self-scouting myself uh, to what I can do better. And, you know, the transfer portal is relatively new. And I wasn't, you know, they brought in a, 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 a rye of guys, a lot of them, group of five type of talent guys. So I, I kind of questioned the overall talent level for UCLA, but they've exceeded expectations. And then at least early on in the season, I just thought they benefited from playing a weak schedule. But I am sold now after back-to-back performances against Washington and Utah, although I will say... This is their first true road test. Uh, I mean, yep. Colorado Great does point. not, yeah, Colorado doesn't count necessarily in Boulder. So uh, I'm interested to see how they react in this environment. But I will say, obviously, it helps having an experienced head coach and obviously an experienced quarterback to possibly handle this environment because it should be one of the better environments we've seen in the Pac 12. I mean, a big thing, welcome back to big time college football Pac 12 conference. It seems like now we're finally talking about you every week. There, there's a significant game, first top 10 matchup in the conference in, in, in four years. So uh, it's a game that I think has some intriguing storylines. But on the positive side, at least I'm not running the window to bet and fade UCLA, at least at this point. Of all weeks, too, Brad. Amazing. You're still taking shots at Colorado in the wake of a upset, outright <laughs> upset of Cal as a two-touchdown-plus underdog becoming the last team to get knocked from the ranks of the winless side uh, and get their first win of the season. Payne, I'll open up the floor to you here. I mean, normally we go in a logical progression. When you're looking at this game from an X's and O's standpoint, which side of the ball fascinates you the most in terms of dictating how we're going to see things unfold at Austin Stadium on Saturday? Yeah, I know we're going to get to both sides, but what's intriguing to me and why this is really difficult for me is metrically you put these two teams next to each other and they are very similar, right? You have two offenses in the top five range of schedule just efficiency, two defenses just inside that top 45 rank and schedule adjusted efficiency. You have two quarterbacks to your kind of your point at the top that can look like Heisman winners one second and leave you scratching your head the next, but both playing more like Heisman candidates, right? They're, they're top 10 in QBR because of the added dimension of their legs. And I think you hit it perfectly in that this is new territory for UCLA with a lot of new parts, a lot of young parts. This is their first true road test where fans will have an impact. Autzen's going to be you know rocking for Chip's return. You've heard multiple UCLA offensive linemen talk about the focus for the last 10 days being about communication and the Bruins pumping in music and crowd noise, trying to simulate that atmosphere. Matchup wise, you know, Oregon's been playing a bunch of four, two, five nickel. They showed lots of three, three, five against Arizona to get more speed on the field. UCLA has to be able to run it. That's their calling card. The line's been dominant. If you look top six in both adjusted line yards and stuff right allowed for that Bruins O line, DTR's mobility is just really tough to stop. And then Zach Charbonnet, right? Averaging 1.8 yards per team play. I do question some of the run defenses UCLA's faced, right? You look at Brad alluded to the first four weeks being pretty soft. We thought Washington's defense was a, a paper tiger. We know how much they lost there. And Utah defensively has struggled a little bit to stop the run to the point where they've tried implementing five defensive linemen for some of these key games. 
Oregon will be by far the toughest unit UCLA has played in terms of stopping the run. And you look at the three best opponents on Oregon's schedule in BYU, Wazoo, and Georgia. The Ducks held BYU to 0.8 yards before uh, first contact per rush, negative 0.2 against Wazoo. And even in the opener against Georgia, right, the Dogs averaged 2.1 yards before first contact, which is slightly below the national average. And that's game one of a brand new scheme with Dan Lanning. So, The Ducks have shown an ability to defend the run where UCLA needs to do some damage. And the reason why Dan Lanning is playing with five plus defensive backs frequently, the Ducks are 46th out of 65 power five teams and opponent adjusted EPA per pass allowed. It's been struggle bus in the back for the Ducks secondary. So you have to have DTR and Jake Bobo take advantage through the air to, I think, stay within this number, guys. Brad, when you look at these two teams, and obviously strength of schedule is such a massive part of what everybody does when they're handicapping college football, even this late into the season, as far as Oregon's full body of work and the emphasis you place on that Georgia game, does that just become an outlier for what we've seen from the Ducks when you talk about the step up in class, some of the intangibles there, and look more at how they performed against Pac-12 opponents when you assess them, not only for this week against UCLA, but what they can be going forward on both sides of the ball? Absolutely. I mean, uh, unique situation uh, for for Oregon in an opener, obviously taking a major step up in class. But the fact that, I mean, you had an apprentice uh, versus master situation with Kirby Smart basically knowing, you know, a lot of what Dan Lanning was going to do. And anytime you see something like that, I go I, I lean towards the guy with the experience edge there. I will say this, as bad as that final score was, the box score uh, and, and reviewing that game uh, again, it wasn't quite as bad as 49 to 3 indicated. And we've seen, obviously, since that po- point in time, specifically on the offensive side of the ball for Oregon, uh, they, they, they've pretty much taken off. I know Payne doesn't like to give uh, his former buddy, uh, the, the former OC at the Florida State, uh, too much credit, but this offense has That's my cert- guy, dilly dilly. <laughs> this offense has certainly taken off, and Bo Nix is playing the best ball of his career. I mean, the big thing for me is, uh, on that, as far as that side of the ball goes, I mean, Oregon's only allowed one sack all year. That's the fewest in the entire country. And you got a UCLA defense that, you know, has been able to get back, you know, pressure on the quarterback, even even playing a softer schedule. I mean, they have a kid that leads a nation in sacks. So I think whoever can win that matchup is going to go a long way, at least on that side of the ball. You mentioned Bo Nix, Brad, and obviously a fundamental part of this handicap, and he deserves all the credit in the world having a career year, posting best marks and completion percentage, passing yards per game, passing yards per attempt, and efficiency rating, much like DTR's counterpart on the other side, and talking about being sacked just one time. Payne, how much does of this give is where we should be giving credit to Bo Nix, and how much of this is about scheme for what Oregon wants to do when you look at how efficient they've been with a 63% success rate running the football at more than 60 yards per carry and quite frankly staying ahead of the down and distance when they've been in conference play it's a combination of everything right i mean bo Nix has a guy that believes in his skill set and talent kenny dillingham recruited him to auburn and you couple that with experience familiarity with this system that they ran a little bit at auburn and then Pac-12 defenses, okay? Oh, there it is, Brad. There it is, Brad. It has, it's been a couple of weeks since we got shots at soft Pac-12 football. It was inevitable. 
And you're not getting a good UCLA defense here. I think we know the talent in the front seven that left in the transfer portal for the Bruins. And Brad kind of alluded to this is like they've replaced it with G5 talent and it's worked so far. But I I just don't see it right. And the Bruins play this bend but don't break style. Unfortunately, they break frequently. Right. The Bruins are outside the top 100 and late down success rate allowed. So they haven't gotten off the field in those key situations. They're outside the top 100 and red zone touchdown rate allowed. The only saving grace for UCLA has been the prevention of big plays, specifically on standard downs and getting turnovers. They're averaging nearly two takeaways per game. So, you know, the Ducks need home bonics to take what the Bruins give him and not have the costly turnover because we know UCLA has the ability under Chip Kelly to be very spurty. The one area to me that's critical is pressure, right? When you look at Bo Nick splits, passer rating dips more than 52 points under pressure still. UCLA got to Cam Rising on more than 37% of his dropbacks. So you're hearing people in the media and the articles that I've been reading talking about how good UCLA is getting to the quarterback just because of that one data point. The reality is UCLA is 89th in opponent-adjusted pressure rate. Brad hit it perfectly. The Ducks' offensive line has not been surrendering pressure. You have to get to Bo Nix. You have to make him go 10, 12 plays to beat you, and hopefully you can turn him over. I just don't know if that's going to happen here. Now, what's interesting about this game for me is UCLA started slow in terms of competition faced. Then they've been really challenged the last two games against top 20 offenses in Washington and Utah. And I think that's a positive being able to build off those performances during the bye. But this is another step up offensively against Oregon in Autzen. And you could make the case creating four turnovers against those past two offenses. And having Washington's average starting field position start at the 19 and Utah's at the 26th, well worse than the national average. There was some distorted play calling on a couple of those drives that helped UCLA's defense significantly. And so that's the interesting element here. I just don't buy this UCLA defense. And I think they get challenged here in a major way. And we kind of see that they're a little bit phony. Now, from what I have heard and seen, there's another battle here. Very much what's gone on in the last handful of UCLA games. And you can see it in the market. And sometimes battles happen off the screen. But again, this week, the one group laying anything below six is well-respected. And then anytime this number to this point in the week has flickered seven, those just poof, right? They evaporate pretty quickly. I'm going to defer to you boys in this game because I'm having a pretty difficult time assessing it. I think Six is probably the right number. I I really do. I mean, I think our number just looking at our core was like 3.2 on a neutral. Autzen is going to be rocking. And then we've all discussed it to this point. Really, UCLA's first true road game. It's such a fascinating matchup for a lot of the reasons that both of you guys hit on in very different manners. When you try and figure out UCLA and their overall public perception in the market as much as anything else. And I think that further explains to your point, Payne, why we've seen a battle. We saw it that Friday night against Washington. We saw it again against Utah. And we're seeing it again here. Sometimes, uh, as Brad can attest to, guys come in with very different power ratings on all these teams. And I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions when you talk about sharp play and betting groups and everything else. Not just in college football, not in the NFL. You'll see plenty of it in college basketball. That that's what makes the world go round. If 
it was all one-way traffic with certain teams, books would find themselves in a very difficult predicament. But UCLA, at least from the outside looking in, has been that most polarizing team. And Brad, I give you a ton of credit. You said they've gotten the best of you twice, and you've made the adjustments here. I think this will be a massive measuring stick, because if they go on the road, win outright in Austin, suddenly we're talking about UCLA not just being a threat to win the Pac-12, but having a road in front of them that'll include a date against USC down the road to maybe being a dark horse if things break the right way to get into the college football playoff discussion. Well, certainly. I mean, they would be an overwhelming favorite then to start 10-0 and 0, uh, while they face, you know, USC in that game uh, second week to, uh, before the end of the regular season. But I I, I hear you, pain. I kind of de- de- defer as far as the side, but I'm trying. I'm having a really hard time as far as the matchups. When you look at both teams' offenses compared to the defenses, I don't see a lot of stops here. So I know it's a high total, but I just think with yeah. the pace that's going to be played, two offensive, uh, you know, uh, driven teams at least uh, to, to this point, I I did take a small position on over early in the week. We haven't seen too much movement though. A little the bit. One thing that's interesting about this and. To your point, we could just have this high-flying affair. But when you have the Ducks defense playing this, you know, 3-3-5, and you have UCLA attempting to play this bend but don't break, sometimes the 10, 12 play drives, chew clock, you get the turnover inside the green zone, you get the five-minute trip that ends in a field goal, sometimes that lends itself to a little bit lower scoring of a game than than what could potentially be perceived but i'm i'm certainly not making a case to go under Man, such such a good game. One that, uh, to both your guys' points, uh, we can look forward to in the Pac-12. Good to see the conference somewhat relevant this deep into the season, not mathematically removing themselves from playoff discussion by September 15th, like it feels like we've seen over the last five to seven years. The conference that has potentially removed themselves from national championship discussion, sorry TCU fans, we'll see how you perform, might be the Big 12, but that's largely because this league from top to bottom has shown more parity in 2022 than any Power 5 conference that I can remember in recent years, and one of the big games this weekend will be in Stillwater, Oklahoma. Homecoming for the Oklahoma State Cowboys as Texas comes to town. And you're looking at Oklahoma State now, a six and a half point underdog in this game, some sixes across the board, and a total of 62. Now, it's worth mentioning in the handicap of this contest, we did see Texas open up as a modest one point road favorite here. They've been bet up. We've also seen the total come down from a peak of 65 and a half. Brad, I think when you're looking at this matchup, before we get into one side of the ball here specifically. Talk about the number and what may have triggered some of this movement. We know the overarching sentiment about Spencer Saunders and how healthy or maybe not healthy he is from an offensive standpoint. Uh, But I think the number probably the most logical place to start in this breakdown. Yeah. uh, So I, I, it was one of those situations where I'm trying to bet the game. It's, you know, it gets opened up at at circa at at 11 a.m. Pacific. I think I get to this game at like 11.02. I see Texas minus one. I made it three, and I wasn't even considering anything at that point, just playing numbers. I, I hit the bet, place bet button. Said line moved to three and a half, so I didn't. It, it was gone even before I could get to it. I think it's twofold as far as the movement we've seen on side and total. Obviously, Spencer Sanders been playing through a shoulder injury. Rumors swirling about his availability this week. Mike Gundy really didn't comment. Uh, you know, he certainly didn't give you a lot of confidence. If you think Spencer Sanders 100% is going to play, you would think he would want to say that, but he didn't. So uh, I understand from that aspect of the movement on Texas. And also as far as the total, not only Sanders 
Panthers being a, a question mark, but yet another game will be a theme this week, at least in, in the middle part portion of the country and down into Texas. We got 20 plus mile an hour uh, w- wind in the forecast here, which is, is another reason why we've even seen this morning and recording another tick towards the under in this game. Yeah, this is the time of year. Uh, we'll say it to all of you that are new to college football and the National Football League. Check those weather forecasts. You're going to see totals move early on. If the forecast clears out, the market will return. But we know professional bettors love to try and get ahead of that to take advantage of any inefficiencies they see. Uh, and Payne, I think the only side of the ball that's really worth addressing then, you know, given the segue and the storylines here, is in regards to that Oklahoma State offense that does lack star power. When you try and find some of the difference makers that are out there, Dominic Richardson, just 10th in the Big 12 in rushing yards per game and 24th in the league in yards per rush. I mean, that group has struggled to find consistency on the ground all season. Leading receiver Braden Johnson, 5th in the league in yards per game, tied for 8th in receiving touchdowns, but has just 6 catches for 98 yards and no touchdowns over his last two games. Much to my chagrin, having a TCU ticket at minus 3.5, Johnson, of course, has the single biggest catch on 4th and 9 in overtime that kept the Horn Frogs from cashing, but I digress. When you look at Oklahoma State's offense against this Longhorns defense. If Spencer Sanders is 100%, it's obviously one handicap, but the current form and iteration, what we can expect there, how do you go about handicapping knowing that Sanders started off white hot against TCU and then really petered out over the final three quarters? I think you guys both broke this down really well and in a concise manner, right? We're not splitting the atom here. And I think to your point, Todd, like one hand washes the other. So all of a sudden, the way Oklahoma State's defense is playing puts more pressure on its offense, and the offense is a little banged up, to your point. And I think the the interesting element here is when you look at Oklahoma State defensively, if they were a stock, I don't think the bottom is in yet. This is just <laughs> not the same caliber stop unit without Jim Knowles, right? And you have a Texas offense trending up with Quinn Ewers back and healthy. And if you probably – I know the, the downgrade wasn't massive – But I think if you had him in for the full season, metrically, you're probably looking at a better Texas offense. And you have B. John Robinson, who continues to be the best back in the country. He's number one in in yards per team play among qualifying running backs. The one offense that Oklahoma State has played in the same class as Texas, it was TCU last week. 45% of TCU's runs went for five or more yards. TCU registered a 16% explosive play rate against Oklahoma State. And I think we both looked at that game and said, wow, TCU is somehow down double digits at halftime despite outgaining Oklahoma State. And then in the second half, it was just domination and they had a chance to cover that game in overtime had they got that fourth and nine stop. So the key factor for me is is Oklahoma State's offense because I don't see a ton coming from their defense, even with the weather. But I just don't know how many stops the Pokes get. Here's the good thing. It sounds like, and we discussed this a little bit off air, Spencer Sanders might get some healthier weapons around him. That's kind of the word. But Brad hit this perfectly. It's it's all about the number and why it's moving is Spencer Sanders isn't 100%. And that was the rumor last week. He was seen after warmups with an ice wrap on his throwing shoulder. It, my understanding is, required a pregame shot. So we saw Spencer Sanders not feeling a thing coming out red hot. And then when the shot wore off, he cooled dramatically. And you saw how impactful that was. Yep. Right. Like Spencer Sanders tried pushing the ball downfield last week. He was three for 14 on passes of 15 plus yards with a pick. And so you couple 
that potential issue for Sanders with the 25 mile per hour winds and supposedly they're crosswinds right now. Now, obviously, it's it's Wednesday. Things can change and keep an eye on that. But there, that's the reason we're, we've gone from 65 and a half to 60 and a half some places. And let's not forget, like the Longhorns defense has been absolutely lights out. I mean, we're now looking at a top 15 unit in schedule adjusted defensive efficiency. The secondary has been nails. And now you're looking at a very good Longhorn secondary, a less than 100% Spencer Sanders struggling to throw downfield, 25 mile per hour crosswinds. Those are kind of the puzzle pieces as to why this side and total have moved. I am interested to see at what number the eventual buybacks happen. And and Brad, I know you're more of the numbers guy. Is it is it seven if we see that? Or is it just too much matchup wise and injury wise to to buy on Oklahoma State at, at seven? Do you need more than that? No, I think seven would be the buyback. In fact, we, we've seen it at just a few spots. It lasted very, very shortly. Uh, a couple of sevens flashed on screen uh, after the original steam on Monday on Texas. And I, there was a buyback, obviously, at that number. But it's it's seven for me, although it still wouldn't be a big bet because I, I don't have you know great confidence in Spencer Sanders' uh, health. And even if he does take the shot. And then on the other side, uh, I don't have great confidence in Oklahoma State's defense to, to, to get some stops here, even if there is some wind. I mean, obviously, Texas, I still think, can gash Oklahoma State uh, on the ground. So uh, we're not there yet. And uh, I'm not sure I'm even even at seven uh, that, that I'm going to be, you know, sitting there and saying, oh, I, I have to absolutely bet Oklahoma State right now. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you guys highlighted some of the concerns, and I think they've manifested themselves on the football field for Oklahoma State defensively, that there was going to be a drop-off both in talent level and experience as long as well as defensive coordinator. I mean, Derek Mason has had his challenges as we see Oklahoma State dropping from 9th to 75th in scoring defense, 5th to 63rd in yards per play allowed, 5th to 46th in yards per rush allowed, and 15th to 100th in 10-yard plays allowed. The one area where the Cowboys are very good is getting pressure and opposing quarterbacks, so with a young guy under center and Quinn Ewers, that may be their best path to success if they can create a short field or two or get Texas behind the sticks should they be able to cover it potentially as a touchdown underdog. You can follow Payne on Twitter at Payne Insider. Follow Brad there as well at Brad Power 7 I'm Todd Furman. Follow me at Todd Furman. Most importantly, as always, follow the podcast at Bet the Board Pod. Uh, and gentlemen, from the Big 12 to the SEC, a pair of games that will break down, both involving schools from the great state of Mississippi. Mississippi State, against an angry Alabama team, finds themselves three touchdown underdogs in Tuscaloosa. Total on this game at 61 and a half. And here are some numbers to think about in your handicap of this matchup. 49 to 9, 41-0, 38-7, 24-0, 31-24, 51-3, 31-6. Seven meetings. Brad, those aren't the numbers of Notre Dame when they play in the college football playoff. Those are the scores of when Alabama takes on Mississippi State, where the Tide have outscored the Bulldogs 265-49 to with 24 points coming in just one meeting. Guys, I know the power numbers suggest one thing, matchups suggest another. Alabama has had a knack for completely clamping down on what Mississippi State wants to do offensively. Any reason to believe, Brad, something could be different this Saturday at Bryant-Denny Stadium? No, I, I don't. And <laughs> a power rating scream that there, there should be some value here on Mississippi State, but I was still sitting there looking to bet on Sunday morning Alabama. 
Uh, and you mentioned not all those matchups against Mississippi State. The last two for me, uh, I mean, 90 to 9, Saban versus Leach. Nine points in two games that Mississippi State offense could muster. And I also look, I mean, you don't get it too often, folks. Sometimes you got to take advantage. Nick Saban, awful loss. Last seven times, uh, he's won all seven by 31 points per game. More pertinent to our discussions on this podcast, he's covered the last seven times off a straight-up loss by 13 points per game. So then just the, those couple of reasons right there is why Alabama's probably laying you know, th- three points more than what they should be. And it's wild, too, to see former Alabama players, Marcus Mays, A.J. McCarron, basically calling out this current iteration of Alabama, something that we haven't grown accustomed to. So if those players are on social media, they see some of those former Alabama greats, you have to imagine they'll play with hair on fire. And it's pretty wild when you look at Mississippi State scoring just nine points combined in the two games versus Alabama under Mike Leach. Outside of this, those two Alabama games, gentlemen, a Mike Leach coach team has scored nine or fewer points in a single game just 11 times during his entire tenure at Texas Tech and Washington State. And Payne, you brought this up years ago, and we talked about Mike Leach when he was the head coach in Pullman. Every year in the Apple Cup, Chris Peterson knew exactly what to do to shut down this offense. Great. And unfortunately for the Bulldogs, We've seen it twice so far on the road. They couldn't get the passing attack going against Kentucky. They couldn't get the passing attack going against LSU. Is this rinse and repeat, one-way traffic? Alabama runs the football. They clamp down a defense, and this game potentially is over by halftime. I think you guys, again, hit it perfectly. And, you know, I think there's, to Brad's point, the number is a touch high, but we were obviously at the Tennessee game last week. And viewing it there... It played a little bit differently than what I saw in the advanced box score. I mean, Tennessee played extremely well last week. That was their best game of the season in their biggest game they've had in ages. Alabama couldn't protect Bryce Young. Alabama couldn't pressure Hendon Hooker. Alabama had 17 penalties. And then finally, when things were turning late first half, Alabama decided to be stupid on special teams and fumble one away. And, you know, Alabama is still searching for answers at receiver. But with everything I just said, Alabama was still up seven late at Tennessee. So, yes, this version of Alabama is down. Bryce Young is is played Houdini. But I think there's a few things worth mentioning here. A couple of you guys have hit on, but I can expound on a little bit. But if you listen to Nick Saban on Monday, he went scorched earth during during the presser. Doesn't love what the coaching staff is doing. Isn't happy with some of the players. And he basically said, we can't continue to tolerate guys that aren't doing the things they need to be successful. Nobody is entitled to a position. We've got to make players more accountable. We need to get them to understand the consequences of what happens when you don't do the little things right. We need to play somebody else. There's always a little fear that goes with respect and respecting what it takes to win. You should know that. My job could be in jeopardy if I don't respect the things I need to do to win. And so there's been this underlying hinting of some lineup changes coming. And I think that's something to keep an eye on. Maybe we see Tyler Harrell this week. I I think this, when you look at how they've performed off of a loss, certainly lines up Alabama's way. The other thing here is Alabama's offensive line has not played well, and I think we kind of envisioned that when you're hitting the transfer portal and getting Vandy transfers in. I know decent player, but not the caliber that you would expect at Alabama. 
I'm not sure Mississippi State's front seven is the unit that takes advantage of that area of weakness. So Alabama should be able to run right at Mississippi State. State doesn't create much havoc. You can move them in the trenches. Mississippi State's outside the top 90 in adjusted line yards. Last week against Kentucky, State allowed 2.3 yards per rush before first contact, another 2.7 yards per rush after first contact, so they couldn't tackle. LSU, similar story, 2.7 yards per rush allowed before first contact, 2.7 after. And then you go back, and I know it was in a win, but Arkansas, without K.J. Jefferson, rushed for nearly 250 yards on State. And then the final thing I think you consider here is everyone will look at what Tennessee did through the air against Bama and to a a lesser extent, Texas, while Quinn Ewers was in the game and think Mike Leach's offense loves to chuck. It should do well here. Maybe that happens, but the offenses, the way they pass the ball are just so much different, right? Hendon Hooker is going to challenge you. His A dot is 12.2 yards this year. The Vols love to pressure you deep. Will Rogers' A dot is six, right? Mississippi State doesn't really hit you deep. There's only one qualifying receiver on Mississippi State that averages more than two yards per route run. Tennessee has two guys that average three yards per route run and two more that average above two. And so this, to your point, is I think why we're seeing Nick Saban's defense have success the last few years, because Mississippi State's controlled passing offense doesn't really offer many wrinkles, right? It's just been very easy to stop. And to your point, that's why you've seen nine points the last two meetings against, you know, with with Leach against Saban, because just this very dink and dunk short pass offense that doesn't come with much variety. And Saban's able to sniff that out defensively. We always talk about perception versus reality as well, gentlemen. And to think about what this number would be if Alabama not just won at Tennessee, but won and covered. If Kool-Aid McKinstry's interception that we can say what we want about the pass interference call stands, Alabama has a chance to take a seven-point lead to double digits. There's probably a realistic chance that this number is significantly higher. Now you get a razor-focused Alabama team. So it's buyer beware here. Uh, To Brad's point, we know what some of the numbers may suggest, but I'm not sure I'd want any part of Mississippi State in this particular spot. From Tuscaloosa to Baton Rouge, where LSU will welcome in the Ole Miss Rebels. And you're looking right now at LSU, a short favorite under a field goal here. We have seen the favorite flip from where this number opened up with Ole Miss modest road favorites. Total in the game, 66 and a half. And to kind of set the stage here, the Rebels are looking for their first 8-0 start in 60 years since going 10-0, beating Arkansas in the Sugar Bowl and claiming a share of the national championship as well as the SEC title back in 1962. Last week versus Auburn, they had their most rushing yards in a game 448 since that 1962 season. Meanwhile, LSU looks to avoid consecutive home losses for just the second time in the last 21 years. They lost back-to-back home games in 2016. Before that, it hadn't happened since 2001. They've won six straight at home versus Ole Miss. Ole Miss won the matchup last season, snapping a five-game LSU series winning streak. When you look at LSU, they got right offensively last week against the Florida Gators, went through a stretch where they scored touchdowns on six straight possessions. Jaden Daniels looked apart, three rushing touchdowns, three passing touchdowns, a far cry from the in-app performance we saw two weeks prior when they welcomed in a top 10 Tennessee team. And Brian Kelly, gentlemen, wasn't shy about addressing that, saying they use that as a learning experience. Paraphrasing here, of course, wish it hadn't happened in a loss. Brad, as far as the number is concerned, Ole Miss deserves full marks. They're undefeated right now. They've gone out there, but they haven't exceeded expectations when they've stepped up in class. We know the market has shifted on them. This feels like a lot of fool's gold to me, given the schedule that the Rebels have encountered thus far. 
Yeah, I'm not going to make no bones about it. I am part of the, you know, the, the LSU flipping to favorite uh, mode here. And it's not like you guys know me. I'm not a huge Brian Kelly guy. But in this instance, I, it does come down to the lack of, again, strength of schedule, uh, l- lack of, of tough opponents that Ole Miss has faced so far this season. I kind of thought there was a good chance, at least in the summer, that they could start off 7-0 and then they would get to this gauntlet starting in, in this game. Another reason for, for maybe some optimism on the LSU side, you mentioned Jaden Daniels, who's at least off his by far best performance of the season so far. But obviously the offensive line for LSU has been a major question mark. I mean, six different starting combos in seven games. And even with a banged up offensive line last week, they found their uh, their moments. I mean, so much so that their true freshman left guard, Will Campbell, got the SEC Offensive Lineman of the Week award. And on top of it, fo- uh, guys, we got a Kayshawn Butte sighting, folks. I mean, he <laughs> you, had his you guys best. called him out. You guys called out Major Booty two weeks ago, and look what happens <laughs> in short order. He has a hundred yards. So, I mean, there was a lot to like about what 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 they did bouncing back from the Tennessee game, at least on the offense side of the ball for LSU last week. So, I do understand the line movement here. When you look at Ole Miss defensively, there's no doubt this could be a shock to the system, especially for their secondary. When you consider the list of opponents they face, Troy week one, and that wasn't the same Troy team that we've seen in recent weeks. Georgia Tech, Tulsa, Kentucky, Vanderbilt, Auburn. I'm not sure any of those are going to be considered elite passing offenses by any stretch, but Payne, I'll open it up to you as far as the one matchup you want to see, whether it's LSU's ability to throw the ball against an Ole Miss secondary that remains largely untested, or LSU's ability to hold up in the trenches defensively against an old Miss ground attack that's exceeded everyone's expectations, so much so that they had a trio of 100-yard rushers last week headlined by freshman running back Keyshawn Judkins. One thing before the matchup, and, and obviously we've talked about the four-point move and Brad's a part of it, so I really respect that move. Now, it's again, it's through zero, so it's not the most impactful four-point Good move. Point. And I am hearing if this were to get to three, there could be some buyback on Ole Miss from one group. But I I really respect this initial move. And it's, yes, you're seeing LSU get a little bit more acclimated to Brian Kelly and his offensive system, which is something you see with new schemes and regimes. It typically takes about seven, eight games to at least have an idea of what's going on. But this is really a play against Ole Miss. I mean, the Rebels have not played a soul outside the top 70 in strength of schedule. And you look at when Ole Miss has kind of played some of these games, something that Brad astutely mentioned at the top of the show, because that's really important this time of year. Their toughest games at home against Kentucky. Will Levis dislocated his finger five minutes into the second quarter. It's Chris Rodriguez's first game back after a four-game suspension. He was still getting his legs under him and getting back in game shape. I think Ole Miss defensively is very susceptible. They just have not played... Many offenses that are very good. I mean, Ole Miss is outside the top 80 in adjusted EPA per per play allowed against that schedule, right? You can push Ole Miss around in the trenches. They're outside the top 70 in opportunity rate allowed, power success rate allowed, and stuff rate. And so, you know, you just look at where the answers come defensively, and I'm not sure there's many. I mean, even Ole Miss giving up big plays through the air right now. So that's a good sign that the part of the LSU team that we thought could be a strength is the receiver group starting to come on, obviously, with Boutte last week having a coming out party. Ole Miss outside the top 90 in schedule adjusted EPA per pass allowed. And, you know, against this soft schedule, Ole Miss has played. They've been 
really inconsistent. I mean, somehow I found myself watching Vandy Ole Miss. Uh, Vandy was up double digits halfway through that game. A really bad Auburn offense, and we started watching some of that game during the tailgate last week, Todd. We thought it was over. Somehow Auburn managed to go on a 24-7 run. They averaged 7.3 yards per rush and had a 19% explosive play rate. Even the other games on that schedule might look like blowouts if you're just scoreboard watching or going back and looking at some scores in the win-loss column. But Troy, Georgia Tech, and Tulsa outplayed Ole Miss for substantial stretches as well. Kentucky controlled the final three quarters against Ole Miss. And I think if that game plays another five minutes, they probably lose that game. And you're seeing the Rebels defense that once it hit SEC play, they're allowing about two yards per play more defensively than it was prior. And, you know, Brad, I know you're not the biggest Brian Kelly guy. And personally, I like Lane Kiffin more than most. But I think Ole Miss might be the most fraudulent power five team in the country. And it wouldn't shock me at all if the Rebels closed the season one and four their final five games. Brad, I kind of want to follow up Payne's point there. When you look at your overall power ratings, uh, can you put in perspective where you currently have Ole Miss pegged? Number 12. I was kind of high on them uh, coming into the season. I've you know, pretty flat, even though they started off 7-0. They pretty much much have met expectations so far. But I can see the trend line here uh, that, that that it could turn. Uh, and I agree with Payne. I could easily see this team finishing 8-4. And, and, you know, one thing that's so wild to me, guys, and because, I mean, it just puts in perspective, we look at our numbers, we go through a watch game tape, try and figure out player matchups. I rarely look at win-loss record or standings other than we're trying to figure out what games you want to discuss. A win here for LSU against Ole Miss would put them into theoretically a three-way tie in the SEC West and allow them to control their own destiny. Amazing to think about LSU being in that spot, given some of the performances we've seen from this team, knowing that they have Alabama in front of them. And especially given how Marcus Freeman has struggled in South Bend after Brian <laughs> Kelly's departure. But I don't want to throw salt in the wounds because I know we do have, other than you being a Notre Dame fan, Brad, we do have some pretty prominent listeners uh, that bleed for the Golden Domer. So I, I had to get my shots in there one way or another. <laughs> Guys, we've covered the landscape as far as some of the marquee matchups in Power 5 conferences this weekend that we're going to be watching. But as always, we like to try and give the little guys proper time on the stage. And Brad, you've identified a game in the Mountain West that I think bears a little bit more discussion. That's taking place in Colorado Springs, where it's Air Force Amadis three and a half point home favorite total in the game down a touch from where it opened at 47 and a half. The 11th time these two teams have met Air Force won the last matchup in 2021, but Boise has taken home four of the last five first meeting back in 2011. When you try and figure out where Boise State is now versus Air Force, I think it's fascinating. And I dug into some of the numbers because I was curious to see how perception on both of these teams have changed. Air Force versus Boise was a pick at some shops during the game of the year numbers. Boise obviously started out a little bit sluggish. Air Force, in my opinion, hasn't been overwhelming by any stretch. Don't be fooled by that 42-7 win last week against UNLV. Here we are, though, at a number at three and a half. And Brad, hopefully you agree. Two teams that appear to be potentially trending in very different directions right now. Absolutely. Uh, and, and look, before the season, I was pro Air Force. I had my biggest season win total uh, bets on Air Force. I thought just first off, the number was bad at seven and a half. But with that being said, even though I was, you know, pro Air Force, I think I might have to sweat a little bit uh, of that one out because it's a team that's already lost a pair of games as a double digit favorite already this season. So I've actually downgraded Air Force since the start of the season. 
Boise State, obviously, you take a look at, at where they were just a few weeks ago in the UTEP game. They're a far different team already in just three weeks for a multitude of reasons. Number one, though, I will say the obvious handicapping tool to, to get out of the way here. I love taking teams with an extra week to prep for the option in the middle of the season. Obviously, it's a unique offense. You get that extra week. That's going to help Boise State defensively. But the main part of why I'm buying Boise State, not only in this game, but moving forward as the best team in the Mountain West, like I thought they were at the start of the season, they are fundamentally a different team offensively than what they were in the UTEP game less than a month ago. Uh, and it's been addition by subtraction as far as I'm concerned. Hank Bachmeyer, multiple-year starting quarterback, best performance, I hate to mention it to you, Payne, was the Florida State game uh, in the season opener, his very first game. It's been all downhill since Unreal. Uh, for him. So he hits the transfer portal, and you don't know, well, what are they going to do? We haven't seen too much out of different Boise State quarterbacks here lately. Well, insert a guy by the name of Taylor Green, who's 6'6", 215, and they have a running threat all of a sudden from the quarterback position. And I think they also significantly upgraded on, all, on the offensive coordinator. They fired their OC after the UTEP game. Dirk Cutter is now calling plays for Boise State. And I know some people are going to you know laugh at that because he didn't pan, necessarily pan out in the NFL. You're still talking about a guy that was a head coach at Boise State, Arizona State, Tampa Bay. And you're dealing with a second-year, young, defensive-minded head coach in Andy Avalos. So having a guy on the other side of the ball with as much experience like Dirk Cutter, I think is a major positive. And we've seen it. Not not only you know theoretically does this sound great, but we've already seen it the last two games. I mean, against pretty good competition, at least defensively, they ran all over San Diego State. That was the most rushing yard San Diego State's allowed in any game in five years. They also did the same thing against Fresno State. Uh, so I think this is a Boise State team that might be the arrows trending up as much as any team in the country, at least on the offensive side of the ball, compared to what they just were three weeks ago. You know, Brad, you mentioned Boise State and what they did to Fresno. I kind of had an asterisk by that game, knowing how banged up the Bulldogs were defensively. Then you watch what they're able to put together against a bitter rival of sorts against San Jose State, yep. completely clamping down on Chevin Cordero. And everything that we had seen from the Spartans came to a grinding halt. So there's no doubt this Boise State defense... If you look at the composite of the season for the Broncos in totality, the defense has been the one constant. They get the offense to step up. Suddenly, we're reminded why this program has typically been one of the teams to beat in the Mountain West. Payne, anything you wanted to add to uh, what you're looking at in this particular matchup? No, I think Brad hit it perfectly. And there's also some value here within the market, right? I mean, you can your OC. Bachmeyer transfers out and the market believes these are downgrades. And it's not because you have more stability now. We talk all the time about mobile quarterbacks being the ace up the sleeve offensively. And I think, you know, addressing the Dirk Cutter situation is interesting because fizzled out in the NFL, but the guy's a professional play caller. I think the other thing here is part of the reason Air Force is downtrended is defensively they've regressed with their coordinator moving on to Virginia in the offseason. And we thought he was really one of the most underrated defensive minds in all of college football. Going back to the other side of the ball with Boise State, I think they have the best defensive line in the Mountain West. And a couple of weeks back, we thought this was like one of their better defenses. I wouldn't say Chris Peterson levels, but we thought it could approach that. And then we got some mud on our face for saying it. But ultimately, I think they've shown that they can get back to that level. You have another Mountain West D-line in Wyoming that gave Air Force's offense all kinds of trouble. I mean, against Wyoming, Air Force averaged 0.001 EPA per rush 
push that was non-existent. Two weeks to prepare for an option is massive off the buy. And I understand Boise hasn't played a great schedule because it is the Mountain West, but we value Oregon State more than anybody. So I think that's the toughest game any of these teams have played. And and I think this is a game that, boy, I don't sound crazy, but I think it has the potential to close below the three. When you look at it, I mean, you guys both highlighted the main key points here, but going through Air Force's schedule, trying to make heads or tails of what this team has done. Wins against Northern Iowa and Colorado, Nevada, Navy in a grinder, 13-10, then of course the bludgeoning of UNLV that was without Doug Brunfield last week, 42-7. Two losses coming against Wyoming by a field goal where they were more than a 14-point favorite on the road in Laramie, and then losing at Utah State with a quarterback uh, that we didn't know what we were going to get from the Aggies. Brad, though, as far as your win total is concerned, the three games that they play after Boise State, Army on a neutral, New Mexico, Colorado State, I'll hope for your peace of mind, they're at least able to get to eight even before <laughs> the regular season finale against San Diego State as the Lobos and Rams shouldn't instill you with the fear of God in any capacity. I didn't have much fear uh, of God against Wyoming and Utah State, but look how that <laughs> turned out. Hey, never sell Craig Bull short when he's catching double digits in his own building. What a sneaky place to play in the Mountain West. I uh, want to encourage all of you, our loyal listeners, follow Brad on Twitter at BradPower7. You can follow Payne there as well at Payne Insider. I'm Todd Furman. Most importantly, as always, follow the podcast at Bet the Board Pod. And Brad, before we bid you a fond farewell uh, headed into what should be another tremendous weekend of college football, anything else you'd like to share with our loyal listeners, parting shots you'd like to take, directed at pain myself or anybody else the floor is yours <laughs> no all jokes aside it was good. i, I kind of missed you guys a little bit last week i mean I, I know my vocal cords did a little bit it got to be a, a bit much talking for an hour straight but i'm glad to have you guys back but you know my closing words will be this hashtag no days off <laughs> hey, you know what, Brad? I joke with pain. When the podcast went live, uh, I said, you know, how long is this show going to be? I figure Brad will, you know, commit two or three minutes to each of the games. I, I know it's a massive slate that's going to have huge ramifications as far as the national championship landscape and a lot of conference races. I see that show go live and it's more than an hour. I'm going, holy hell, what the heck is going on around these parts? It wasn't planned. I was expecting 35, 40 minutes. I did... Let's just say I probably did 3x the time of notes I, I normally do. And to get through all those notes, yeah, it took an hour. You know what, Brad, at least? Brad's a college football enthusiast. You just wind him up and he goes. <laughs> and it was it was great content. And I texted you last night and said I actually missed doing it. And I think the one thing that I said to Todd was as we sat at dinner Tuesday evening, this was the first time, I think, in Bet the Board history that we felt confident, and obviously it was Todd's bachelor party, but so we, we took our little respite for the first time since inception in 2014. But this is the first time we felt confident being away because of your acumen breaking down college football. I appreciate that. But I will say this, yeah. the, the other thing I missed, my bankroll missed you guys. I, I, I missed the, the feedback uh, that pain usually gives me, what, what's bad and what isn't. Uh, wasn't a, a great week for for the old BP bankroll last week. Yeah, we we got we got one in on the NFL side with the Patriots over. 
We did. Yeah, I did want to. Thank you. Want to echo those same sentiments, Brad? I mean, hey, look, us taking a week off wouldn't have been possible without you there to hold down the fort, provide tremendous analysis. I know all of our listeners appreciated having some college content to feel the gap uh, as they definitely felt the NFL void. So uh, you were the biggest offseason acquisition that we could have around here. You lived up to those expectations and beyond. And as far as planning for 35 to 40 minutes and going an hour, now you know exactly how pain feels every Monday morning when he thinks those NFL podcasts are going to be quick hitters. <laughs> and I dragged that thing out for an eternity to reach the 60-minute mark. Had to do that to you. Uh, have, have to play the role of Todd last week, Payne. Sorry. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> Best of luck this weekend, my good man, with all your picks, and we'll look forward to uh, breaking down the biggest game, same time, same place, and next Wednesday morning. Thanks, guys. Wild scene, to say the least. Uh, and Payne, the one thing that we didn't touch on at the top of the show or, or even in depth with Brad it's a lot. When you take that week off, you build such a cadence and a schedule to do what we do week in, week out. It took you and I a lot to start digging into some of the games, and I'm not afraid to admit it. I'm a little bit behind schedule for this week uh, than where I would like to be when we record on Wednesday mornings. It's all about form and rhythm and getting your body into that schedule. And that's ultimately the difficult part about traveling is you just get in form, right? And we were gone six days. You're not living in front of the screen like you would traditionally do and then getting back into the fold, right? Traveling on Monday and it was tough. Fortunately, I think we did a pretty good job here covering and breaking down some of the biggest games this week and cannot thank Brad enough for holding down the fort last week. No, outstanding job for Brad. That's why uh, we made the call to bring him into the fold. It takes a lot to be branded a bet the board analyst and Brad has exceeded all expectations and our wildest dreams when we had our sit-down chat earlier this summer. But we do have one final order of business to transact on a Wednesday morning before we bid our listeners a fond farewell and regroup on Thursday with the National Football League. It's about in finding investment opportunities. Where are you taking us this fine weekend? It's a good question. I <laughs> think we're going to audible a little bit here because it was going to be Boise State plus three and a half. And that is a game that I think we'll both find ourselves on as well. But once Brad made that his non-powers five game, we will audible here a little bit to give our listeners two pieces of action. Better men than us would have just said, you get Boise State, deal with it. That's it. <laughs> but it's another game that we broke down 317 Kansas State plus the points. I'm not quite sure where the market goes from here, Todd. Obviously, this opened some places as high as six. We're down down to three and a half. There's a couple straggling fours out there. This is obviously an 8 p.m. game. It'll be the big game. Everyone's seen TCU undefeated to this point, beating three straight ranked opponents. This feels like a game where the public will have their say late. So I'm not sure where this goes from here. I would grab the best number that you can. Again, some straggling fours out there. Do we want to call it three and a half or better? Yeah, let's call it three and a half or better. If you can find a four, great. But I think three and a half is a pretty fair consensus. I mean, it is now. But I, I do wonder. Yeah. Right. Like we we know the groups that have already entered this market. Is there going to be another move here in the next couple of days as limits increase or is this going to be steady Eddie and then all of a sudden we see the, the wave of public money come in on TCU and we get back to a four? I think that's certainly plausible. Now, <laughs> if it takes another move downwards, you, you certainly uh, can understand how large of a position that would be on Kansas State from some of the most respected betters. True. 
It, it is a very fair point. We talked about this game in depth. It's time stamped as always from a situational perspective to what I think, quite honestly, uh, whether TCU fans will agree with me or not, it's a coaching mismatch in favor of Kansas State and one defense that should come in a little bit more well-rested in this particular spot. Uh, TCU deserves a ton of credit for what they've accomplished already in Sonny Dykes' first season, uh, but you can only bring it so many weeks in a row and try and find your A game. And last week, they were able to snatch a victory from the jaws of defeat, albeit dominating on the stat sheet. We'll see how this week goes when Kansas State wants to hit them in the mouth, knowing how buttoned up Purple Power can be on a college football Saturday. Any other uh, parting shots, little tidbits, nuggets you'd like to share? Hopefully a little slightly more relaxing Saturday for you with Florida State on a bye before they have a five-game stretch to close out to what's been a slightly successful season thus far. Yeah, it's uh, a very important five-game stretch for Florida State to close out the season. I think there's potential there to go 4-1 and one as they get a little bit healthier out of the break. Would fully expect Fabian Lovett back, a fully healthy Jared Verse, Tatum Bethune, Malcolm Ray, Cooper, all of those guys being a little bit healthier on the defensive side of the ball. Robert Scott, your left tackle, who's just been a warrior the last two weeks, playing at about 70%. Much-needed break, and I think... You would have signed up for four and three the first seven games if you looked at things at the beginning of the season. Unfortunately, like most fan bases, even my beloved own, a little bit delusional, got to four and oh, thought they were just going to run the table this season. Understand you probably should have won the NC State game there. And then last week, certainly not when you look at the scoreboard, right? 34 14 at one point. And thinking like, oh, Florida State's just outclassed here. Wasn't really the case. About a three-minute stretch during the middle eight where Clemson outscored Florida State 17-0. Aside from that, the other 57 minutes, certainly Florida State was entrenched in that game and they were beaten up. So I think you have to like what you see there. And, you know, just thinking about this contextually, right? You're now competing with the biggest schools where last year, I mean, you're throwing up on yourself at home to to Jacksonville State. So even in losses, you're seeing this team – hit stride a little bit, but a very critical five-game stretch for both Mike Norvell and the program overall. It does feel like a good trajectory for a lot of perennial powers in college football. Brad not here to defend himself. Uh, I'm not quite sure about Notre Dame. The jury is still out there on what's going on in South Bend. But when you look at USC as well, even in the wake of a 43-42 loss against Utah, a lot of optimism on the West Coast. Hopefully we can turn this sport that has become extremely regional in recent years into a bit of a more of a national phenomenon with some powers restoring their legacy. All right, my man. As we close this out, we started discussing the bachelor party and your pending nuptials. I will close with the same because I'm a gentleman. This will be your first wedding gift. I will allow you to grab the four out west rather than sending my guy out there to grab the four in Kansas State. I, I That'll be that my num- first gift to I, you. I, I figured that number would long since disappear because I know you get your <laughs> minions out there moving. I'm here recording, trying to send off files, and suddenly the entire market is absolutely destroyed. So I appreciate um, your very kind service and or piecemeal gesture, whatever we want to call it. But all right, for Pain Insider, I'm Todd Furman. Follow us both on Twitter. You can follow the podcast as you should at Bet the Board Pod. Sign up for the Bet the Board Podcast newsletter, which should be back in circulation as well. But most importantly, with not one, but two tickets in hand this weekend, on the Boise State Broncos plus three and a half and Kansas State plus three and a half or better. Hopefully we'll see you at the window. 
Thanks for listening to Bet the Board. You can catch Todd and Payne every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday during football season, breaking down the biggest NFL and college football games. And to make sure you don't miss any free best bets, subscribe to Bet the Board on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Some people just know there's a better way to do things, like bundling your home and auto insurance with Allstate, or hiring someone to move your piano instead of doing it yourself. So do things the better way. Bundle home and auto and save up to 25% with Allstate. Bundled savings vary by state and are not available in every state. Saving up to 25% is the countrywide average of the maximum available savings off the home policy. Allstate Vehicle and Property Insurance Company and Affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.